At one time or another, we all read comic books or come across comic books, but there is one that is so different, that has broken every barrier and perhaps will alter, according to a New Republic report recently, will alter the way we look at comic books. Art Spiegelman is the creative artist responsible for it. And believe it or not, this is about, it deals with Auschwitz. It's a comic book that is a cartoon book and not comical, but absolutely stunning in its revelation. It's called Mouse, M-A-U-S, A Survivor's Tale. And Art Spiegelman is my guest. He's the cartoonist, pantheon of publishers of this. He also was the publisher of a comic magazine called Raw. And perhaps you have to begin with this thing, with this book itself that David Levine, one of the best of our characters, cartoonist, calls, right, it's Kafka. Uh, the New York Times had an epic story told in tiny pictures, and a colleague of yours, Jules Pfeiffer, says, a remarkable work that is awesome in its conception and execution at the same time, one at the same time, a novel, a documentary, a memoir, and a comic book. Brilliant. And how do we begin talking about this book with you, Art Spiegelman, who created it? Well, let's see. I think most people are so put off by the combination of elements that make this book up that it takes a while to break down their barriers, to break apart their preconceptions and actually make them take a look at it. They say, a comic book about the Holocaust, and then they find out, well, it uses funny animals. It uses mice for Jews and cats for Nazis. This sounds like it's in such bad taste, I, I don't even want to get close to it. And for me, it was a very natural development to do the book this way, and I was even surprised that people thought me um, uh, to be so uh, peculiar for having done it, because it was, it was quite natural, and I think the response that it's gotten has indicated that I'm right in thinking that... Um, this is just one way of telling a story. You say it's quite natural for you because we have to make it clear that your father, who is the narrator of this book, he is, well, you're talking to your father, right, a Mr. survivor of Auschwitz. Right. It's a book about doing a book, in a sense. I'm, a, I'm the cartoonist's son who's visited my father, who actually was a survivor of a number of the death camps in Europe, as was my mother. And um, I went back to visit him after a fairly long estrangement in 1978 in order to find out exactly what happened to him. And the two years of tape-recorded conversations are the basis of this book that I'd been working on for the past eight years. So it is a novel. It's a novel. At the same time, there are comic strips in which your father and all the fellow Jews of Poland and who many of whom enter and don't leave the concentration camps, are mice figures. Uh, the Germans are cat figures, and some of the Poles here are pig figures, and some of the Americans toward the end are dog figures. So the animal aspect is also part, it's almost a crazy cat legacy, isn't it? Well, from comics in general, or from the old uh, Tom and Jerry cartoons with the cats chasing after mice was, part of the uh, springboard for using this as a metaphor. The word mouse, M-A-U-S, is the German word for mouse, of course. And I suppose another real springboard for having used mice to begin with was um, I wanted to take the rhetoric of the final solution and turn it back on itself so that um, you have a situation where what was happening was described as the extermination of the Jews. Now, extermination is a word that's usually used for bedbugs, roaches, rats, and mice. Well, as you quote the very beginning, Hitler, who says, the Jews are undoubtedly a race, <coughs> but they are not human. 
And, of course, very often he used the rat image about them. Right. Did you ever see that um, documentary called The Eternal Jew that was done as a propaganda film in Hitler's Europe? It has um, pictures of Jews in a ghetto, and then there's a cross-cut to rats swarming around a sewer. And it's exactly that kind of imagery uh, that was necessary to create a climate for the final solution. It's necessary to, de necessary to dehumanize people before you can kill them. And so what you've done, you're a cartoonist, and we have to come to your background, too, as we go along, because you are interviewing your father, visiting him, where he was living at the time in Queens, New mm -hmm. York, a borough of New York. And the book, the cartoons go back and forth. Right. You shifts. and your father and your stepmother, since your mother had in the meantime committed suicide. We perhaps come to that, too. And there's another comic strip, another different one entirely that your father discovers in which you become quite autobiographical and right. personal. Well, so is this one, isn't it? Well, the whole book is very much autobiographical. It, it crosses over from my autobiography to my father's biography. Suppose we just do some, perhaps some readings from it, the way Fiorello LaGuardia, the mayor <laughs> of New York, used to do on Sundays with comic strips. Well, actually, it's, it's probably appropriate because right now Mouse has sold out its first printing before publication date, and it's in the process of making a new printing now. So this is like when, re when one used to read comic strips when the newspapers were on strike, while people wait for Mouse to get back into the bookshops. It's still there right now, but there's not that many copies around. I should point out, by the way, just to, as a preface to what you're about to say, that uh, Time Magazine, New York Times, uh, New Republic, Nation, I've all spoken very enthusiastically and oh, stunned by the power of this particular work, Mouse. So, Art Spiegel. Oh, yes, so now to read. Why don't you start and maybe set the scene for the whole okay. thing? Well, since it's back and forth. All right, this is actually uh, the um, pre title sequence, if you will. It's a, a sequence before the beginning of the book in which um, I'm a 10 or 11 year old child in Rigo Park, New York. It's 1958. It was summer, and I was roller skating with my friends, Howie and Stevie, and uh, there's a picture of me, and I'm saying, and one Make of the kids... Make it clear, these are all mouse... These are all mouse figures, yeah, yeah mouse. some dogs in the background, and one of the kids is saying, last one to the schoolyard's a rotten egg. So I was roller skating with my friends till my skate came loose. Ow! And I fall. Hey, wait up, fellas. Rotten egg, ha ha. Wait up. And then, sniff, sniff. Uh, my father was in front fixing something. Uh, and he, a mouse also, calls me over and says, Artie, come to hold this a minute while I saw. Why do you cry, Artie? Hold better on the wood. I, I fell and my friends skated away without me. He stopped sawing. Friends? Your friends? If you lock them together in a room with no food for a week, then you could see what it is, friends. And of course, that's the preface. Because yeah. right then and there, what your father said, he's sawing, he's always doing things. Well, come to your father, who was a very flawed man, and there's a conflict in you and him. But he's saying, that sets it. What do you mean, friends? And this gives you a tip, or lock them together for a week without food. That yeah, so what, what, what happens is um, there's a, kind of a little hole in space. One keeps falling from Queens, New York, back in time into uh, Hitler's Europe, and, and the book just uh, slides back and forth between the two locations. And so it begins, my father bleeds history. This is 1930 to the winter of 44. And the first uh, chapter is called The Sheik. And so your father's talking to you at the beginning of the book, of the book, as it is a book of this cartoon collection, 
proper. And it's a catching up process, isn't it? Now, he's living with your stepmother, Mala, who's an also a uh, camp survivor. Yeah. Mala. Because we'll find out later about your mother. And your father's kind of a cheap guy, too, isn't he? He wants to save dough all the time. Yeah. Um, in fact, at some point in the book, I was troubled by this because my protagonist, in, in fact, there's a sequence in the book in which I discuss this very problem. Uh, it's a problem for me that my protagonist, in some ways, is a caricature of what people think Jews are in, in their most stereotypal uh, racist imagery in that he is uh, very tight with money, very practical. And for a while, I was thinking, well, gee, maybe I should change the story around and try to have a, a more wholesome figure as the lead character, which was an absurd thought. But this is what happens in the process of doing a book. And then I realized that, well, there's no one race or group that has any monopoly on uh, cheapness. This, this is a human characteristic that cuts across all boundaries. And my job was to portray the characters in all their complexity. I know that people usually associate comic strips with simple-minded, simplified characters, but uh, what I've tried to do is present all the characters, myself included, as relatively complex beings. And the hope is that when one reads through the book, one not only uh, cancels out the factor that they're mice, but you end up feeling that you really know these characters as people you've met. That's the point. You yourself, because here you, you're out to get the story no matter what. It happens to be your old man, mm -hmm. who's sort of a very flawed guy in many ways, who survives. And by this book ends with your parents being taken to Auschwitz, and there's a sequel that you're working on now. Pantheon have published this. And so we begin with your father in Poland somewhere, a young hotshot, right? Yeah, he was... Um he describes himself as a very handsome man, and he describes a premarital affair that he had. And at the end of the chapter in which he describes himself as having been considered uh, somewhat like Rudolph Valentino, a real chic, um, he tells me that this story about his premarital affair isn't something about the Holocaust, and he doesn't want me to put it in the book. And the chapter ends with me promising very solemnly that I wouldn't do anything like that. So you violated. Yeah, and I think that violation of trust is... is uh, in honor of a greater trust, which is to bear witness to what happened to people when, what happens to people when they're caught up in the flow of history. See, now we come to something, don't we? A very delicate point. This matter, violating a personal trust. At the same time, you, Art Spiegelman, being the, by the way, stunning creative artist you are, we'll come to other of your works here in this, have to get about human beings in certain circumstances and what it's like using these cartoons. Has there been a precedent for this before you continue with? Well, I, uh, this is certainly the most extended work in America that I know about that deals with such serious subject matter. There's an interesting book that came out of Japan called uh, Hiroshima Gen, which was done for children, but it was a 2,000-page comic book. Japan's uh, tradition of comics is rather overwhelming. Uh, and it's a comic book by a, a Hiroshima survivor who became a cartoonist when he grew up and eventually did a series about a young child who survives Hiroshima. And that actually is published by the War Resisters League. And if one can get over the cute, big-eyed, keen-like Japanese cartoon characters, uh, the book actually is quite moving in its own more 
uh, oriented toward children's comics way. You know, as you say this, you don't mind if I jump back and forth. There's been a long oh. profile written about you by Lawrence Weschler for The New Yorker. Has this appeared yet? Uh, it's not for The New Yorker. It's for Rolling Stone. Actually. Oh, it's for Rolling Stone. I'm yeah, he's sorry. usually a New Yorker writer, though. He's, yeah, but for Rolling Stone. Mm -hmm. And in it is something quite remarkable. It's an anecdote that he tells. When survivors, your father's colleagues, came across this book, they said, that's true. Mm -hmm. And they didn't, for a moment, they ignored the form, that the fact that they were mice and cats, the Jews were mice and uh, the Germans cats, ignoring all that. That's true. Then a couple of veteran cartoonists, older <laughs> cart, read your work, and they said, boy, that kid, meaning you, Art, he does those mice and those, he's fantastic. He's a good mouse man. That was yeah, their only response. <laughs> and they didn't consider the substance. Mm -hmm. So two views of looking at this thing. So there's a double mm -hmm. hook yeah. here, isn't there? Yeah, there certainly is. Um, well, with, with my father's responses to the book, it was kind of interesting. He died in 1982, incidentally, but he did see the book in progress. And um, comics were just not a form he was very comfortable with. If you grew up in Poland at the turn of the century, it was just not a medium that was popular in Sosnowiec, you know? So uh, the only way the book ever came to life for him is when I actually sat down and read panels to him, and then he could see it taking form. He saw that some kind of book was happening. Before you read some more of the panels, you yourself, the cartoonist, and the whole post-war phenomenon of a new kind of cartoonist coming into being, since the bomb, certainly. Uh, now, uh, we have to, you know, crumb for one. Here in the reader, uh, Jay Lynch has carried. There are certain kinds of cartoonists different from any of their predecessors. That's right. I, I'm actually part of that generation of so-called underground cartoonists that were part of the uh, countercultural press that grew up in the 60s. And what was exciting and vital about that was it was the first time in the history of comics that there was such a thing as an avant-garde of comics, where comics were unmoored from their... Uh, their use as something to sell newspapers or as a light entertainment or escapist feature like comic books for children. Here you had cartoonists who were talking to their peers, who were other young adults, uh, about things that concerned them. And from underground comics grew the kinds of serious work that we're publishing in Raw Magazine and that indeed Mouse is probably uh, an example of. And in fact, when we're talking about precedents, there's one very obscure, I suppose, underground comic book called Binky Brown Meets the Holy Virgin Mary that came out in about 1971 by a cartoonist named Justin Green in which he explores his own Catholic childhood in comic book form. And as far as I know, this is the first time anybody did a really serious autobiographical comic book. And he got a letter from Philip Roth that said, congratulations, now I don't have to be Catholic. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. So, so there's a, a, a very obscure tradition in which Mouse uh, uh, is growing in. Yeah. So this is Mouse's part of this tradition. Obscure it was, but now it's becoming... It seems that people are finding out about it now. now. And then, like I said, Mouse is probably, I'm sure, is the most extended and probably the most intricate of the kind of work And Mouse area. is something, by the way, you read like a novel. I think Pfeiffer's right. It's a, it's a novel, uh, a comic book, a documentary, a memoir, all at the same time. It's what it is. And by the way, this is highly autobiographical. You were seeing your father, and he did tell you these stories off and on. But there's something else goes on. You're talking about him today and certain of his characteristics and relation to your stepmother, Mala. And yeah, that's... Um, 
in a way, the book is subtitled A Survivor's Tale. And what's I intentionally left ambiguous is, am I talking about my father, the survivor, or am I talking about myself having survived my family background? You know, it we're will. both survivors because in that sense. You yourself, by the way, have been through a ringer. Of sorts, yeah. Period. yeah. Not nearly as uh, created by external events, not as obviously created by external events as what my father and mother went through, but I have to survive my own childhood. Yeah. Probably everybody does. Yeah, so it's a double survivability involved here. Let's take a break, our first break, talking to Art Spiegelman, and then you're going to continue reading from Maus, M-A-U-S, that's published by Pantheon. And it's a, it's a book you read, you don't put down. It's like reading a, a gripping novel. But more than that, you're watching those pictures, and you can't quite believe what you're seeing, but it's there. And strangely enough, incredibly believable. And we'll resume after this message. So resuming with Art Spiegelman and Mouse. And we have the preface. Now your father set the scene and also he was a young hotshot in this town, Sosnowiec, on the Polish-Russian border. Uh, Polish-German. It was part Polish of German border. It was actually yeah. very close to Auschwitz, to the town of yeah. Auschwitz. I went back there, incidentally, and uh, tried to find the locales that my father and mother lived in. And while I was there, I took a train trip to Auschwitz, which is only a 30-minute train ride. I still have the ticket in my wallet, actually. I thought I was very privileged to be able to get a round-trip ticket. Um, and I went and looked over uh, the camp that my father had been in. And that was interesting as sort of a, a bleak version of uh, World's Fair exhibit. It was, it's called the, po the uh, Memorial for Polish Martyrs. And it's set up as a series of exhibits. And you can buy ice cream at the entrance to Auschwitz and then look around. Mm -hmm. But from there, I walked over to Birkenau. See, Auschwitz itself was a concentration camp that had previously been a... Um, uh, a place where Polish soldiers had uh, stayed before World War II, but Birkenau, which is the camp my mother was in, which was uh, about um, a couple of miles away, we walked to, and that's very, very scary place. It's uh, all that's there now are the burned remains of what had once been there, and so that's uh, probably one of the most haunted spots on earth. Yeah, you saw Shoah. Oh yeah, Did brilliant you? film, yeah. brilliant. Shoah dealt with that with those places as they are yeah. today. And one thing I really admired about Lanzmann's film is the lack of sentimentality in his approach, which is something that I had been uh, concurrent to his project, uh, using as an attitude with which to approach my own material. Because uh, a lot of this material on, on survivors and a lot of the Holocaust literature tends to be uh, drenched in a kind of uh, pathos and sentimentality that, uh, in a way, it's ironic, I suppose. People say that a comic book might be a trivializing way of handling this material. But I think to deal uh, with this as a, to deal with the subject matter by tugging at one's heartstrings, whether it be in a novel or a film, is actually far more trivializing. Yeah, but when we say comically, it's not. As you read it, it's not comical. It's gripping, but they're comic strip-type figures, these mice. And so your father, we come back. He's telling you back, it goes back and forth to Queens, where he lives with Mala, and to the towns and beginnings in Poland. And so he leaves this girl whom he has an affair with early day. He's telling you this because mm -hmm. he's really thinking about He's on the make, in a way, too, isn't he? Yeah, well, that was actually something that I was trying to figure out about how he got together with my mother, because he describes her as not especially attractive, although she was very intelligent. But I think one of the things that attracted him to her was that she was from a very wealthy family. 
This is not to say that their marriage was a loveless one. I think that they actually built a very wonderful relationship with each other over the years, but it's a uh, symptom of his personality that that's what attracted him to her. And so why, why don't you pick it up anywhere you feel like? Uh, Actually, what I was thinking of reading studs was a sequence far later in the book. Does that, All right. Is that okay? Um, there's a sequence when my mother and father are in hiding, and he's trying to um, uh, look for a better hiding place. And he's wandering around the streets, although most of the Jews from this locality have already been taken away to um, death camps. Uh, and he walks around disguised as a Pole. And the way he's disguised as a Pole is by wearing a, uh, a Polish pig mask. Um, see, what, one of the ways I've dealt with this uh, metaphor is I, I consider it a self-negating metaphor. It's a metaphor that's meant to cancel itself out and call attention to itself as a metaphor rather than to it be uh, all the way through, oh, yes, Jews are mice. That's not my point at all. So when he has to walk around as a, as a Polish man, not as a Jew, he's wearing a very obvious Woolworth pig mask with little strings hanging off behind it. And then he says that he's walking around in the street, and he says... Just to keep it clear, there's not meant as a put-down of the pole. It's simply no. indicating a situation as an animal It's an, an animal, animal universe. World. And on the other hand, I mean, all of the metaphors are ambiguous. And I think that it's they're meant to be somewhat shocking and then meant to be canceled out. So on the one hand, I think the Poles' relationship to the Jews in the 20th century has been rather problematic. It, there were pogroms in Poland before and after World War II. On the other hand, there are some very wonderful and very humane Poles in we my story as book. well. Yes. And uh, I, I certainly am not interested in creating new racist stereotypes. Mm -hmm. Far from it. Uh, nevertheless, he, he says, it came Thursday. I went in the direction to take a streetcar to see Mrs. Kafka in Sosnovitz because she might have a better hiding place. I had to pass where some children were playing. And one of the children says, look, a Jew, a Jew. And they ran screaming home. Help, mommy, a Jew, a Jew. Quick, the mothers came outside to see what was. The mothers always told so. Be careful, a Jew will catch you to a bag and eat you. So they taught to their children. I approached over to the mothers, Heil Hitler. If I ran away, they would say, yes, it is a Jew here. And he goes over and he taps the kids on the head and says, don't be afraid, little ones. I'm not a Jew. I won't hurt you. And the mothers, one of the mothers says, sorry, mister, you know how kids are. Heil Hitler. And he says, Heil Hitler. And he says, so I came out well from this, but the experience cost me really a lot of hairs. Yeah. So there was the, he's telling you all these stories, and this is toward the very end of the book, of this particular one that's now out. In, on the bookshelves, Mouse. There's a part two, a sequel is what you're working on now. But he's telling you this, so you hear him, he says, and then this happened, and then you go back mm -hmm. to that Polish time and uh, the Nazi time, and then you go back to Queens again. Yeah, um, see, one of the things that happened was, I think I had mentioned that my father and I were kind of estranged when we first got together to do this, uh, these long series of interviews, and it was by having these interviews that I developed a relationship with my father. Um, you see, since whenever we weren't talking about the Holocaust, we were just at loggerheads all the time. Um, and this was an area of safety for us, ironically enough. It was an area where when we were talking about this, which was what most people would say the most gloomy, depressing, horrible uh, subject matter to dwell on, uh, we developed a closeness, as interviewer and interviewee at least, that allowed me to have a relationship with my father. Here's the crazy irony, isn't it? This was therapy. Yeah, as is the book in a certain sense. Uh, the book is, but talking about the horror. Is a way of the releasing it. The unspeakable horror 
was also what wedded you to your father. I mean, uh, broke down the barriers. Yeah, because by finding, even that sequence I just read you, by finding, um, my father was very present-minded. He was actually able to think very quickly and very alertly in these uh, times, extreme times of stress, and uh, was in that sense admirable, you know? And that was, it, it allowed me to find an avenue to, to find things that I respected in my father. But as you say that, back and forth, again, you spoke of the complexity of his character and of you. There's a spot where he talks before the Nazis invaded, the Germans invaded Poland. Your father was drafted in the Polish army mm -hmm. and became a prisoner of war. Oh, no, it was after the invasion. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And he was a prisoner of war of the Germans. And where's the sequence in which they're told to do a terrible job of cleaning up a task of Hercules on page 52? 50. And mm -hmm. they had to clean up the stables. Oh, right. And oh. when they don't, uh, you got to clean it up, and, and so the cat soldier, the Nazi soldiers, this this will cost you your soup, you lazy bastard, because they didn't finish this terrible job. But then we cut back to you on the floor, listening to your father, and your father sees you, right? And he, he says, and someone somehow we made the job, did do the job an hour and a half, and then she, and then he says to you now, now in Queens, and look what you do, Artie, huh? You dropping on the carpet cigarette ashes. You want it should be like a stable here? Oops, sorry. Clean it? Yes, otherwise I have to do it. And now he comes back. He's bawling you out just the way the <laughs> Nazi soldiers bawled him out at right. that time. Right. And then he goes into fetching again, goes into complaining about my stepmother, and he says... Uh, Otherwise, I have to do it. Mala could let it sit like this for a week and never touch it. And she knows how with my sicknesses it's hard now for me to do such things. Okay, okay, it's clean. And then we cut back into the but story. But here, here's the point. He's describing a, a, an horrendous experience. And now back to the triviality mm -hmm. or, or to something. But that's what's so amazing. And I think it's, a, it's very important to understand this way beyond even the context of the Holocaust per se, which is triviality is what life is made up and, of. And it's true of the life in the past as well. Uh, that these little moments are clearer in the present because they're the ones I was most directly witness to. And yet, this what's important to me to make clear in the book, for myself and for readers, is that history is not this abstract subject that people study. It's what happens to people. It's what you're living through right now will eventually be a part of history. And you're caught up in events that you might consider remote and distant from you, but that absolutely envelop you. And the trivial moments are part of that history. This is, uh, this is the banality of evil, and there's also the, the evil banality of, of banality, living. but the reality of banality. <laughs> exactly. We talk about that today. My mm. God, talk about banality and trivia overwhelming us at this moment. Mm -hmm. And so it's a contemporary book, quite obviously. It's about now. That's right. Even though your, your old man was telling you about then, and you're listening, it's now. That's right. We're talking about. That's right. But we have to come to you too. Okay. This is a this is a certain form here, the mouse, and your compliment upon form, and by some for the substance, and the cats, and uh, the pigs, and the dogs, but an earlier cartoon of yours, different form, something almost like a woodcut. Oh mm -hmm. yes. Uh, that was prisoner. From, that was called prisoner of a hell planet. That was another stage of your life. Right. That's something I did back in 1972. And it's a comic strip within the comic strip here. And that was a comic strip I did about my mother's suicide. My mother killed herself in 1968. And 
what happened was for a few years, I sort of blanked that event out of my consciousness. I knew my mother killed herself. If anybody asked, I'd say, yes, she committed suicide. But the events surrounding it were a blur for me until about four years later, when it came rushing back as the result of a trivial argument with my girlfriend, where I realized my anger was directed at my mother, not at my girlfriend, uh, maybe even a banal uh, psychological realization, but it let all these me memories flood back in, and it led me into doing this Prisoner on the Hell Planet comic strip, which I think is, uh, again, a rather unusual way of using comic strips. It was drawn in a very expressionistic style, very uh, woodcut-like, as you said, and in fact, every comic strip I've ever done, I've had to find a different visual approach for. It's as if I was an actor trying to find my way into the best way to express a role. And the best way to express that particular emotional experience was in this expressionist style. So it's a comic strip within the comic strip in which the mouse cartoonist here has drawn a comic strip using humans yeah. to portray but this is part of your past. story. This exactly. is part of your novel here. Because Marla, your stepmother, now this will be back to Queens, uh, your father's second wife, saying, I came across Vladek is your father's name. I saw her for the first a couple of days ago, and she comes across this comic strip that you did in the woodcut in the expressionistic right. style, and yet your father discovered, why don't you pick up on that? And then, I asked her how she ever discovered such an obscure comic strip, and she says, my friend Ruthie has a son in college. He reads all the comics. He showed it to her, and she gave me a copy. I knew it would upset your father, so I kept it hidden, but somehow he found it. I drew this story years ago. It appeared in an obscure underground comic book I never thought Vladek would see. And then it's, um, gee, should I read this? Uh, now we, it's up to you. Um, I can. It's, uh, it's up to well, let's you. see. It's, let me just say that it yeah. starts with a, a, a picture of a hand in the first box holding a photograph of my mother and me uh, when, we're, uh, when I was a child in uh, 1958. An and it's an actual photo. And then the framing device around the whole page is a hand holding the page of this comic within a comic. And uh, in the course of it, it describes the events surrounding my mother's uh, death. And I mean, you are, uh, you have a prisoner's sort of a... Yeah, it's sort of a concentration camp uniform that I'm wearing. Concentration camp uniform. Oh, you know, uh, ironically enough, I didn't think of that when I was drawing it. That's strange. I, I just, I have to trust that my subconscious knows what I'm doing. And in that instance, I just thought of it as a prisoner's uniform. And then later on, I started looking at comics and realizing, well, gee, when people draw prisoner's uniforms, they draw horizontal stripes on them. And this is vertical stripes and therefore something else again. Before you read that, uh, uh, as much as you want to, because this is highly personal. But then, the but whole, then it's in the, the book. Yeah, the book is uh, to remind the audience. My guest is Art Spiegelman, who is a remarkable artist, cartoonist in this instance, and yet novelist too. Mouse is the book, M-A-U-S, and is now available. Subtitles: A Survivor's Tale, and Pantheon are the publishers. And after this message, we resume with Mouse. And so we resume with Art Spiegelman. Maybe you're talking about your father telling you the story of his life, a uh, certain aspect of his life. Uh, he's in Queens, and all kinds of problems with him that are breaking down as he's telling you this story. And now your his second wife, that is your stepmother, Mala, also a survivor, has come across this piece you did in another form, Prisoner of a Hell Planet, this woodcut form, and you're telling about your mother's Okay, and I describe uh, coming back to the house uh, after a day out and finding a crowd around it, and a cousin herded me away from the scene and said, come to the, doc uh, come to the doctors, your mother is um, sick, he'll explain. Dr. Orens lived nearby. 
Sit down, Arthur. I thought I should be the one to tell you. Your mother killed herself. She's dead. I could avoid the truth no longer. The doctor's words clattered inside me. I felt confused. I felt angry. I felt numb. I didn't exactly feel like crying, but I figured I should. And then there's this kind of uh, distorted picture of the doctor saying, she's dead, a suicide. And my cousin says, now, now, boy. No, let him cry. It's good for him. We went home. My father had completely fallen apart. Oh, Artie, why, why? Such a tragedy and not even a note. I was expected to comfort him. Mother, mother. Somehow the funeral arrangements were made. Um, and then the next, after the, uh, this, a scene at the funeral parlor, a friend of my, the family found me out in the hall, and I'm crying, and he says, now you cry, better you cried when your mother was still alive. I felt nauseous, the guilt was overwhelming. The next day we spent in mourning. My father's friends all offered me hostility mixed in with their condolences. Arthur, we're so sorry. It's his fault, the punk, thinks another visitor. They think it's my fault, I think. But for the most part, I was left alone with my thoughts. Menopausal depression, Hitler did it, mommy, bitch. I remembered the last time I saw her. It's her huddled in her nightdress coming into my room, saying, Artie, she came into my room. It was late at night. Artie, you still love me, don't you? I turned away, resentful of the way she tightened the umbilical cord. Sure, Ma. She walked out and closed the door. Well, Mom, if you're listening, congratulations. You've committed the perfect crime, I say from behind bars. You put me here, shorted all my circuits, cut my nerve endings, and crossed my wires. You murdered me, Mommy, and you left me here to take the rap. Uh, this is a long shot of a maximum security prison with another prisoner from behind the bars saying, Pipe down, Max. Some of us are trying to sleep. Yeah. Now, then your father discovers this. But perhaps just a word about this particular sequence, that different form. These are not mouse and cat figures. These are humans now. And that. I think a woodcuts. I know. I think a Rockwell is the Rockwell. Kent Rockwell Kent and Ward. Uh, yeah, that yeah. Era, at that era. It's for that, isn't it? Yeah. You mentioned Ward. That's a name. What's his first name again? Lind Ward. Lind Ward. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and isn't that artist. funny? And I thought of those two as you as you were doing that, and because this also involves you and accusations and everything else here. You know, one of the things I found with this book is. It's certainly not meant, it's not directed at any one group. It's certainly not directed toward children, although I've found that some children have read it and, and, and actually understood it. Uh, and it's not directed specifically toward a Jewish audience or anything like that. But among the people that I've met who've read the book and found it uh, meaningful to them are a number of children of survivors. And this I found out at one of the signings I did. Number, uh, at least a half dozen of the people who came out of the 100 people uh, were survivors' children. And one of the reasons the book was important to them was that well, let's see, how do I say it? As a, as a child of somebody who went through this kind of thing, uh, the child grows up feeling unable to express his own anger at his parents because you feel no matter what they do to you, they've been through so much, how can you possibly cause them more pain, see? And so a number of the children of survivors uh, find themselves in a kind of emotional straitjacket where they can't respond fully to their parents. And because this book is a fuller response, it does include affection for my parents, but it also includes the anger that's expressed even in that one sequence I just read. And in a sense, that gives them both a vicarious experience of feeling anger at their parents and a kind of permission to feel that anger that allows them to fully realize themselves more. So they, uh, these particular ones who are your contemporaries and pretty much in your spot, children of survivors, recognized a, a truth here. Yeah, uh, like I said, I was not trying to be a spokesman for children of survivors no. or anything like that, but that does seem to have been an aspect of the response yeah. to the book. And uh, although I'm not advocating anger between children and parents, I think that that's an important uh, aspect out. of a full relationship with somebody. Yeah. 
We, we, all we're doing is uh, touching back and forth. We're not going chronologically, picking out sequences, because this builds and builds and builds as your father would go back and forth to the borough of Queens, where he lives, and... Uh, Eastern Europe. Well, he also does carpentry work. He fixes things around the house, and he throws away. We're coming to a key moment there involving your mother's diaries and what happened to them. But before that, why don't you, why don't you choose uh, sequences oh, as he's going? See. We know now what's going to happen to them. But before that, we're talking about the Jews of this town, your father and guys he worked with and relatives and your mother's folks and close shaves. And what did your father feel when he came across your earlier one, your woodcut Oh, okay, one. that's a nice sequence. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I really like the complexity of the interaction here. Um, my father comes in right after I've, uh, Mala, has, my stepmother, has told me uh, that he's read this strip. And she says, I tell you, when Ruthie showed it to me, I thought I'd faint. I was so shocked. It was so so personal, but very accurate, objective. I spent a lot of time helping out here after Anjo's funeral. It was just as you said. And then my father comes in and says, so, Artie, I'm ready. Let's walk now to the bank together. Mala just told me that you saw my comic, the one about Mom. And he says, yes, I found it when I looked for the things you asked me last time, the diaries. I, I saw the picture there of Mama, and so I read it, and I cried. I, I'm sorry. It's good you got it outside your system, but for me it brought in my mind so much memories of Anja. Of course, I'm thinking always about her anyway. And Mala angrily says, yes, you keep photos of her all around your desk like a shrine. And he says, what have I to do, Mala? On the garbage, put them. On, of you also, I have a photo on the desk. And she walks up saying, ach, don't do me any favors. And he says, you see what I have with her? Always, whatever I do is no good. And I ask, did you find Mom's diary? So far, this didn't show up. I looked, but I can't find. I've got to have that. Well, wait, now something else happens here with your, your stepmother, with Mala and your father. He's, see, every now and then your father gets very moved, sentimental, or what you will, about your mother. And now his second wife's getting jealous. I mean, it, continuously, he's bringing that up as though he's irritating her deliberately at times. Yeah, well, their relationship was one of victims victimizing each other. I, that's about the clearest way I can describe how they lived together. Yeah. yeah. Now, where was the sequence? Uh, oh, the reference is made in the profile of you that Lawrence Weschler did for Rolling Stone, in which there's a number on the wrist it was that Mala who says to kids who would come in, oh, your mother said kids would come in. Well, that's a number uh, didn't want to talk about. That's a number of a telephone number I'm trying to remember. Yeah. That's not in the book, actually. That just came out no, in the interview that will be coming out in Rolling Stone. Yeah. So there's that aspect of not wanting to. Is there a sense of shame there? Is that it? Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's an ambivalence. I think one of the clearest things in the book is the ambivalence of, in, on all characters about all subjects. Uh, and, see, my mother could have had it surgically removed, the number that was tattooed on her arm when she entered the concentration camps. But on the other hand, it's a badge of honor of having survived. And yet she didn't want to have to always carry that at the forefront of her meetings with people. So she would always get bracelets that would cover these numbers up. So uh, perhaps a spot uh, as we're approaching... You know, the noose, the noose tightens is the last uh, chapter. Actually, uh, the last chapter is Mousetrap. Mousetrap is the last chapter, noose tightens. How the community is trying to survive or to make it or to escape. And you speak of the community. And some of the guys were called operators. You have a name for them. 
A combinateur. Huh? A combinateur is combinateur. what my father describes these people as. Yeah. A combinateur is a guy who's what? Who's sort of... As a hustler, basically. A Somebody hus- who's a- able to make ends meet by conning various ends and meeting them all in the middle for yeah. his own benefit. Uh, so he describes one of his cousins who's uh, in the ghetto as well, and he says his cousin Haskell. was... Haskell. was a real combinateur who was friends with the Jewish police and, uh, and, and uh, was in a position of strength in the ghetto for a while. And then describes one... Do you, do you want me to read that sequence with the cake? Is that the one? What, what page is that? Uh, that's on page 119. 119. This is in the ghetto that my father was uh, imprisoned in for a while. And... Uh, He's talking to his cousins, one of whom's on the Jewish police, and he, he ex- tells them that he just escaped being shot by a, a Nazi guard who's known as the shootist, uh, who just shoots Jews for fun in the ghetto. And then as they're talking, another mouse uh, runs by and says, aren't you going over to Pesach to buy some cake? Cake? For years we didn't see any cake, hardly even bread we saw. It's impossible. He's joking. Cake? But Cousin Pesach, who's also a combinateur of sorts, was really selling cake. Everyone that could afford it stood online to buy a piece. And there's a long line saying, it looks delicious. How did you manage it, Pesach? When people are sent to Auschwitz, my men search their houses, because Pesach's part of the Jewish police in the ghetto. Pesach was like Haskell, part of the Jewish police. They find a little flour here, a few grams of sugar there. I saved it. He was younger from Haskell, but also a combinateur. You know what a cook my Rivka is. Try it. Only 75 zlotys a slice. I had still savings, so I got for Anja and me some cake. But the whole ghetto, we were so sick later, you can't imagine. Some of the flour Pesach found, it wasn't really flour, only laundry soap. What he put in the, what this he put in the cake by mistake. Ow, oi, we were all of us sick yeah. like dogs. Yeah, is this a story your father told you? Yeah. Oh, all, all in here, by the way, is, is as your father told you. Oh, yeah, as oh, best you. I could. See, there, there's a funny thing that happens when, with all oral history, as you must know, full, full well, which is it's difficult to actually make the truth known once it's translated into another medium. And so this is a, a, a translation of an oral history, but that involves a lot of shaping and reworking in order to try to make the full shape of the truth really known. Oh, ab- absolutely. So, also, we're going back and forth. To these, we're, dealing, we're dealing with human characteristics, human attributes, and human frailties throughout the book of all the people, the Jews, the others, back and forth. And there's the, some of the Polish people who protected them. That's mm-hmm. in, and then the fear, that, the, the natural fear that came about as a result. You have a number of those sequences. Yeah, there's one sequence that I, I wouldn't mind uh, telling you about, which is where my parents are hiding with a, a, a rather fine Polish woman who's keeping them in her basement. Uh, they're usually staying in her house, but they're in the basement because her husband is back on leave from working as a prisoner uh, for the Germans himself, and she's afraid that he might turn my parents in. So as a result, they're in the basement hiding. And in this sequence, she, the Polish woman, says, if he, he my husband, knew you were here, he'd throw us all out, but don't worry, you'll be all right in my cellar. I set up a mattress. I'll come down whenever I can. So each day and night, we sat in such a storage locker. In the days, we were afraid to breathe. People came down often to their lockers. At night, we could move around a little, but it was something else down here. And then my mother goes, ay! And my father goes, what is it? There are rats down here. And my father says, shh, calm down, stop screaming. Those aren't rats. They're very small. One ran over my hand before. They're just mice. And my father tells me, of course, it was really rats, but I wanted Anja to feel more easy. And the way that page was set up is there's a a relatively realistic picture. Uh, The whole page is set up visually around a picture of a very realistic rat that's in the foreground in the basement. 
And, yeah. and that was a way of trying to call attention to the, the uh, hopelessness of using a metaphor like this. Because there's my father telling my mother, an anecdote that he actually did tell me, uh, he's telling my mother, don't worry, those aren't rats, they're just mice. But of course, in my book, the figures are mice. So yeah. this calls the whole, let's, the, the whole metaphor just starts collapsing around it collapses. here. And of course, the proportion, is, it's, it's an outsized rat. In the foreground, and then there's these uh, anthropomorphized human-like mice behind them. And to me, it's a little bit like the old Donald Duck comics. Donald Duck and Grandma Duck would sit around and they'd have turkey dinners. And I always thought that was kind of cannibalistic yeah. to have that happen. Yeah. Uh, and. It, I wanted to call attention to the fact that uh, these mice, mouse heads that my father and mother and I are, have in this story are a kind of mask. You know, it's, it's as if this was some kind of Japanese theater where the characters are wearing rather blank-faced masks. Mm -hmm. And that kind of blankness and that kind of simplicity of, uh, of the facial structure, because they're not even Mickey Mouse type mice, they're just very simplified uh, rodent heads, uh, is a way of... Uh, to me, it's a little bit like Little Orphan Annie's eyes. When you look deep into those eyes, you see a lot of expression in, the, in that comic strip in Little Orphan Annie with, where she had those blank eyes. And in a way, by having these relatively blank faces and relatively simple drawings, it allows the reader to project the reality of the situation. Of course, really, uh, what, you, what you're also telling me and the listeners, I trust, is that what seems so simple is very complex, too, the complexity and the tradition behind it all. It's not accidental that your colleagues, whether it be David Levine, the cartoonist, Edward Sorrell, who says, Mr. Spiegelman's passionate pen has stretched the boundaries of the comic strip form and created a work of immense power. And uh, as Pfeiffer said, all forms are in this one form. And yeah, I think uh, people have a natural prejudice against comic strips because uh, a lot of what's been produced in comics has been rather uh, banal and frankly stupid. But as a form, as a medium, it's as vital and as expressive as painting film or, or, or literature. Maybe the word comic, the adjective comic, should be eliminated in the sense of a strip. Yeah, you know, in France they just call them bande dessinée, which are drawn strips. Drawn so it's far strips. more neutral. This is a strip that is a novel. That is, it's a strip that is visual. The, a novel that is visual. Yeah, I like the word strip because it also means pulling away layers. Yeah, you know? it's true. Mouse, M-A-U-S, you use the German mouse for it. And a survivor's tale, Pantheon the Publishers. And let's take one more break and then we'll, we'll go into the last lap. Art Spiegelman, we resume. And this is a Mouse, M-A-U-S, survivor's tale. And the novel, the strip, the novel, is, is, is uh, about 160 pages. It's an actual work, and Pantheon published it. And it ends, you know, the ending is incredible. For the, it ends as they're finally captured. Oh, they also have your fathers telling you how they lived, hidden behind walls with a dozen other people. Mm -hmm. or behind big coal piles yeah. and finally betrayed by a couple of guys that are trying to that pay sold them off. down the river, basically. Yeah. Sold down the river, and they're on their way. And now I have in my hand, as Joe McCarthy used to say, I hold in my hand uh, beginnings of the next, of the sequel, yeah. Mouse Part Two, Mauschwitz is the Mauschwitz. name of the chapter. In the, in the course of the chapter itself, it's referred to, of course, as Auschwitz, but as the chapter title, like, uh, it has one more abrasive and vulgar joke. And you're starting to work on that. Now, this is the se but sequence one, 
the, the book Mouse Survivor's Tale. That sequence you're looking at, incidentally, took me eight months, so this sequel will probably take quite a while. It's it a 32-page sequence yeah, this there. Is the beginning, we have certain uh, pages from the sequel, and it looks to me like it's a stunning, an epic story told in tiny pictures, is what uh, the New York Times said of it. By the way, uh, you said the New Republic has something called what? Uh, There's something called the Zeitgeist Report, which reports on breaking and important news stories to give it uh, a, a kind of overview of what's happening in the world. And uh, last week uh, in the Zeitgeist Report, I think number, the number one story was the war on drugs, and maybe number two was Danilov, and number five was... Uh, about mouse and comic books in general breaking through and becoming something else. See, because this is a new story. <laughs> it's a breakthrough. See? Yeah. All of a sudden, comics are now beginning to be thought of as a possible form of literature. And this is a breakthrough that's happened in Europe already. If you ever go into a European bookstore in France or in Italy, there's a section for comics the same way there's a cookbook section or, or, or a mystery section in bookstores in the, in the United States. And you're also, you and your wife, who is French, yeah. edit this magazine, this comic magazine called Raw. Yeah. And this is the eighth edition of it, eighth volume. And below, the graphic aspirin for war fever. Yeah, the subtitle changes each issue. One was uh, the graphic magazine that lost its faith in nihilism was another issue. And this has Birth of the Bomb, Beginning of the End. Yeah, by Paul Boyer. Yeah, out Pantheon, too, as I recall. He's, but this, now, here you have... It's a combination of everything. It's news, it's uh, graphics of one form or another, cartoons. The, uh, this is available. It's called Raw. Yeah, it's hard to find. Uh, it's available in New York and in very selected shops around the country. It's got a circulation of 15,000 as of this issue. And excerpts of Mouse are in it, too. So we are left now with what? We're, we're left now with uh, Mouse available. This, this book That now. book is out and easy, easy to find. Raw is only available by yeah. mail through raw books or, or in selected bookshops. I think in Chicago, Barber's Bookstore carries raw. Yes, it, yeah, and I think possibly uh, Gill Bookstore may too oh. here. But that story of father and son, so I'm still taken with that thing you said earlier about talking about this horror as your father did. But he was not averse at all to talking about it. No, although he ironically, my mother was the one when I was growing up who was much more willing to talk about it than my father. While I was growing up, my father would wake up screaming, you know, but he, he would only tell a few stories. It was only as an adult when I went back that my father talked to me. Um, my mother had kept journals during the war that she reconstructed after the war in Polish that were her memories of the war. And from what I knew of my mother, uh, she was far more interested in interpersonal relations and the psychology of the situation she was in than my father was. And I wanted these diaries very badly to complement the story my father was telling me. And it was a shocking revelation to find out that my father actually destroyed those diaries. Now we come to, and here's what won't come to the last panel here, but you're quite bitter toward the end. Your father saved all kinds of things, as Mala <laughs> said to you, his second yeah, wife. Including said 1959 he calendars. He saved everything. But why, what made him? Did you ever tell you, what made him destroy your mother's diary? Well, he said he what destroyed you? a lot of her papers because he just came across them one day and was just feeling so horrible and depressed about uh, what had happened to her and what had happened to them that he just didn't want to keep those memories alive that way. Uh, that may be the reason. It may be something else. I don't know. All I do know for sure is that my father let those diaries be thrown away. And it was, it's really my mother's mandate, and, and I've taken it on, to bear witness. 
ironically, because I'm a generation removed from anything I could bear witness to except my relationship with my parents, and yet it's what I've taken upon myself is to tell what happened to my parents. Yeah. So he saved strings almost. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And destroyed the diary. Come back to another aspect. But there's something you said. He used to wake up screaming in the profile, the Rolling Stone profile of you that Lawrence Weschler wrote. Uh, you said often your parents wake up screaming, and you thought it was natural. Yeah, it was only when you I left home. You thought all kids' parents wake up screaming. Exactly. Uh, in fact, there's a sequence in this uh, first chapter. Do we have time for one more sure. sequence? Sure, of course. Um, there's a sequence where that you haven't read yet, Studs. It's the beginning of the second book. Oh, it's the second book. Let me just uh, read That's you in, a, a you, piece You read here. it. Go ahead. That, okay. You, you have it within uh, Raw, the And magazine. it's a sequence in which I'm driving over to the Catskills to uh, visit with my father because... Uh, Mala has just left him, and um, we're, we're in a car driving, Francoise, my wife, and I, and I say, Vladek sounded half hysterical on the phone, and she says, poor guy, I feel so sorry for him, and I say, yeah, me too, till I have to spend any time with him, then he just drives me crazy. Mm. And then I go, sigh, and she says, depressed again? Just thinking about my book, it's so presumptuous of me. I mean, I can't even make any sense out of my relationship with my father. How am I supposed to make any sense out of Auschwitz, of the Holocaust? When I was a kid, I used to think about which of my parents I'd let the Nazis take to the ovens if I could only save one of them. Usually I saved my mother. Do you think that's normal? And Francoise says, nobody's normal. And I say, I used to have nightmares about... Francoise, your wife. My wife, yeah. And I say in the car, I used to have nightmares about SS men coming to my classroom and dragging all of us Jewish kids away. Don't get me wrong, I was not obsessed with this stuff. It's just that sometimes I'd fantasize Zyklon B coming out of our shower instead of water. I know this is insane, but I somehow wish I'd been in Auschwitz with my parents so I could really know what they lived through. I guess it's some kind of guilt about having had an easier life than they did. Ah, oh, I feel so inadequate trying to reconstruct a reality that was worse than my darkest dreams, and trying to do it as a comic strip, I guess I bit off more than I can chew. Maybe I, I ought to forget the whole thing. There's so much I'll never be able to understand or visualize. I mean, reality's too complex for comics. So much has to be left out or distorted. And Francoise says, just keep it honest, honey. And then I say, see what I mean? In real life, you'd never have let me talk this long without interrupting. And she says, <laughs> light me a cigarette. Yeah. Talking to Art Spiegelman. How, how you described cartoonist? I guess so. You know, that's, it's funny. All these words are problematic. Comic strip is a problematic word, and Holocaust is a problematic word. And uh, yet, there's a book about the problem. The book is Mouse, M-A-U-S, a survivor's tale, Pantheon the Publishers, and it's, uh, when you read it, the, the, uh, the remembrance is indelible, and the effect is uh, stunning, overwhelming. And thank you. I hope this is the first of regular visits. I hope so. For so. you. Thank you.